Hey, it's Mark. Apropos for a week that saw Pi Day for the mathematically minded, yours truly not among them, as well as the Ides of March, we've got a couple of analytics-based stories for you. As the so-called artificial intelligence arms race heats up, Google, OpenAI, and Microsoft have all promised major strides in infusing AI into healthcare. That included Google's strategic reveal this past Tuesday about its large language model app, which is being built for medicine, MedPalm. And you can read all about Google's latest AI progress in medicine on our site. But the journey to infusing analytics technology in healthcare is fraught with ethical issues like bias and privacy concerns. Jack spoke with Matt Lewis, Global Chief Medical Analytics and Innovation Officer at Anizio Medical, about the healthcare use cases for large language model apps like ChatGPT, particularly in medical communication. Turning to health policy, Lesha, you've got a number story for us too, right? Yep. Today I'll give a rundown of the healthcare items Biden included in his 2024 budget proposal, including more efforts to lower drug prices. And Jack, I was going to ask who won the social media popularity contest this week, but you've actually got a science-related story on tap, right? Yeah, and a kind of a break from our typical social media segment, we'll be discussing the prospect of non-hormonal male contraceptives and whether or not there's a demand among patients to take them when they're available. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. So the internet has been having a field day with AI-based app ChatGPT since it was let loose last December. And Google, as I said at the top of the show this week, popped the hood on a variety of healthcare tools built with artificial intelligence, including its own generative AI tool, Tune for Medicine. Yet while many observers have labeled this an AI arms race, there's more at stake for patients, physicians, hospitals, and payers. Against this backdrop, Jack, you conducted an interview this week with Matt Lewis, Global Chief Medical Analytics and Innovation Officer at Anizio Medical, about the use cases for apps like ChatGPT and medical communications, right? Yes, I did. It was a really intriguing conversation. And at one point, I actually asked Matt, you know, is there a use case for ChatGPT beyond people just kind of brainstorming ideas or high school students plagiarizing their essays for English class for books that they didn't read? And he said that there are really a lot of options out there for medical marketing agencies in terms of being able to do new things as it relates to copywriting, being able to come up with different ideas, and really trying to boost uh, some of these concepts that ultimately enhance patient outcomes. So I think it's a really interesting interview. I really implore our audience to listen to some of the ideas that he uh, talks about, both in terms of risks and opportunities for medical marketing agencies. And we'll meet you on the other side. So I'll get right to what we're going to talk about, which is kind of the top story in terms of medical marketing and innovation and technology. And, you know, it's even bled into the mainstream media, which is ChatGPT. And kind of the hype around it and what sort of applications we could actually see taking place in the healthcare community. And I want to start there just on a very broad level, Matt, what you make of ChatGPT and this kind of emergence and reinvigoration the industry has had with AI and its capabilities. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly been a, a, a real kind of powerhouse just uh, in the last couple of months that it's been on the scene. I think, 
Today was the milestone that uh, ChatGPT reached 100 million users uh, just in the last uh, you know couple months that it, that's been out in the world. You know, kind of getting to that point in like a something like a third or a quarter of the time that it took TikTok to get there. And you think about how fast and how much of an audience TikTok has to, for something to kind of beat that that record is just you know mind blowing. Um, but I, I think the the one thing that that for us is is really kind of uh, you know really uh, illustrative is is not so much that. You know, the, the people are kind of seeing what artificial intelligence is capable of or that it really has so many use cases. And I think both those things are true, is that it you know, kind of for, for the first time really democratized access to artificial intelligence in a way that kind of anyone can kind of really approach it and see what it can do. And, you know, the AI has been kind of out there in our world and, you know, in, in many worlds for quite some time, but it really required, you know, data scientists or required specialists and required someone to kind of interpret on, on behalf of the, the machine, so to speak, what was going on. But the, the, the folks over at OpenAI and, you know, the, the broader large language models that are out there can now allow, you know, re regular folks to kind of just understand kind of what it can do and what it can do for them. And I think it's just, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about what it can do for them, because I think that there's been this sort of fear, you know, whether justified or not, of the kind of existential crisis that comes with sort of these AI technology, whether or not it could take the job of, say, copywriters at different medical marketing firms. There's been even suggestion about my line of work as it relates to journalism and whether or not just an AI could be able to write, you know, a story, or be able to pull quotes or whatever. I'm curious what you see as kind of the defining application as it relates to medical marketing communications, because I've heard a lot of leaders talk about it not necessarily replacing people, but replacing the people that don't know how to use this technology to their advantage. Yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely fair. And I think, you know, that you do hear out uh, in the world that people say things like that, you know, doctors that use AI will replace those that don't and lawyers that use AI will replace those that don't and, and all the like across the full professions. And I think that those are fair statements for, for sure. But um, it's also in, in you know, almost at the task level, uh, you know, in tasks that we have within our world, whether it's in creating copy or thinking about implementing live events or you know, other activities that where we are able to raise up and disintermediate and really kind of contribute from an artificial intelligence perspective, those things will be more considered or more effective or more impactful than those that don't. So it may not be this kind of binary, you know, in the profession or not in the profession. Yes, no, binary, you know, what's one zero. But, you know, in, in those aspects of our work where we're able to juxtapose or layer in an AI kind of consideration, those things might be more rich or more enjoyable or, you know, that we might be able to connect more with others. And then the things where we don't, they might just be a little bit more kind of humdrum, if you will. Um, I, I was at a, a running a workshop last week for a, a bunch of life sciences executives and someone asked me a similar question that you did is, you know, are they fearful that it's going to take everyone's job? And I said, I think typically within our space, uh, most people have like the opposite fear that artificial intelligence is, is not going to do enough. You know, that, that it's not, not so much that it's going to run in and kind of take everyone's position. Everyone's going to be out of, out of work, but that, you know, we're, we're going to kind of sign on too quickly and that we're going to over promise and under deliver. And I, I, I think what it still is a, a bit, early in the in the trajectory to think about what is possible but I, I think that over time we will start seeing a number of, of implications and, and implementations across different sides of the of the world where people will start kind of being able to do more than they have been able to do and as a result maybe shift into types of work or types of roles or types of jobs that they couldn't have imagined before and maybe that will be hopefully more fulfilling.
And that's where I wanted to follow up is if there's anything that you've seen that has impressed you as a leader in terms of its application. I know that we've seen a lot of people talking about the fact that it passed like the bar exam or it's helped high school students write essays for books they didn't want to read. But I imagine there are real world applications where businesses are able to say like, oh yeah, like if I consulted with um, ChatGPT, it was able to identify maybe some trends I wasn't paying attention to, or certainly as it relates to patient outcomes. I know that's something that people are always trying to get a boost on. So I'm curious if there's anything that you've seen that's impressed yeah, I mean, I, I, it is still early days. I mean, I know it's only been a couple of months, but I think there are, there are really kind of three main areas that, that we're starting to see a lot of kind of experience and exposure. And I'd say also like our space in you know, the life sciences, you know, biopharma space is one that has always been, I think, a bit risk averse, but, you know, carefully so, because I, I think we don't want to, you know, find ourselves in a situation where, uh, you know, teams with, with whom we work, whether they're internal within our organizations or you know, alongside the companies where we work, are taking things like patient data or, you know, clinical trial data or proprietary data and putting it into an open source tool and then saying, Hey, you know, what, you know, what, what do you think about this in the broader context, the broader scheme? And, and then all of a sudden now this is out for the whole world to see. So we have to kind of act with a bit of caution. And because of that caution, I think there aren't as many use cases that people are kind of looking to that are directly relevant to the work we do just because people need to act with a bit of trepidation. But I, I did see a report recently that one of the larger consulting firms, McKinsey, had put out about the use of generative AI and, and some really interesting examples of where it had proven helpful. And I think one of the one of the examples that they showed in the report is is really kind of illustrative of, of what is going on here. And what they what they did was they ingested all of the um, records from a large health institution, large hospital, and they asked the the chatbot to essentially come up with a, a different way of scheduling patients in the OR. Um, and for the, the many years prior, the, the people that schedule patients in the OR were you know, people in the administrative suite that would you know, typically do this day in, day out. And they have all their understandings of, you know, wh- whether the surgeons wanted to, you know, come in early in the morning and, you know, see a patient at 630 in the morning. Most people would say they don't want to do that because they want to give their coffee or they don't want to be staying late at night because they have to go home and see their kids or they don't want to come in on a Friday night because that's their time on the weekend. And they have all these kind of built in expectations and biases about what other humans would actually want to do. And as a result, the the booking blocking schedule for the OR in this large institution had all these kind of baked in expectations, these human expectations that really kind of made for a very inefficient schedule year over year that the, the human expectation kind of essentially limited a lot of effectiveness for the institution. And when they ingested all these records, years of records into it and asked ChatGPT to come up with a, an actual schedule for the surgeons, they found like 35% of additional time that surgeons could actually see patients that they were fine with seeing that it turned out when they actually asked them, would you go see a patient at 6.30 in the morning? They're like, yeah, that's great. I'll, I'd love to see someone at that time. I'd never been asked. No one ever asked me. And so it, it, it kind of gave them some additional possibilities or considerations or alternatives that to them was a, a real, a, maybe a shift left or shift right or you know, a way of considering, uh, you know, that hadn't been been thought of before. Um, and it, it wasn't, you know, completely novel in the sense that, you know, it didn't create a new operating suite per se, but it gave them, you know, capacity and space that, that otherwise didn't exist. So I think it, that 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 kind of way of planning is, is something that I think we'll probably see a, a fair amount in that the, the, the technology gives us like maybe some opportunities or possibilities or considerations that, as humans, we may not otherwise think 
our, our actual possibilities because of the way we've been raised, the way we've worked, or the, 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 the patterns we typically find ourselves in, the biases we bring to our environments. And you know, the generative AI is not trained that way. It's not brought up to consider those as, as real, if you will. So it almost kind of puts forward like a, a set of alternative uh, ideas potentially. And it, it, it is thinking intelligently, but thinking about intelligent alternatives, if you will. I've always kind of said that about AI, that it's about like, it's not so much about like this, you know, brilliant partner, but it's like thinking about the same problem in a, a slightly different way. And if you think about it that different way, you have lots of different ways you can think of. It's like getting into a room with lots of different people that think about the same problem different ways and maybe coming up with a better solution. So I think we are going to see a lot of new ways to plan that haven't historically been possible across healthcare. That, that, I think that's one, one good example. Well, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that example with the hospital. And, you know, I used to come from the world of covering hospitals for a magazine and just having that understanding of like, this is the way you've been doing it for years and decades. And all it takes is to your point, bring in this new piece of technology or this new perspective. And you're able to completely rewire how you've done things, not for the worst, but to be more efficient, to have the focus beyond the patients, to have the focus beyond these, you know, healthcare workers that are battling burnout, they're battling all these sorts of burdens and being able to do it in a, in a more efficient process. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it, it is really interesting. I mean, it'll, it'll I, I think the places where you'll also probably see it are within our world, say within you know advertising or within agency land, within any place where you need an idea, um, and you know anyone that's kind of uh, open to to ideas, you know, to be able to have another uh, another trusted or considered partner there to kind of ideate is you know be really helpful if you do a workshop or a pitch or you know any kind of uh, session where you're looking to ideate to be able to have a, a set of of other considerations before why, you know, go into a room with, you know, uh, you know, 20 ideas when you can have 50, you know, for the same price, essentially. Um, I think, you know, that is, is a really in- interesting kind of uh, consideration. Uh, another kind of sleeve of consideration that we're seeing a lot of work and we're leading some of this work as well as in what might be called implementation work, where the, because, you know, there's such a kind of, kind of constrained digital content supply chain upstream where, you know, the, the, all the kind of bio, pharma, life sciences, manufacturers have so much content, so much great science that they're trying to get out to their stakeholders. It, it's difficult to find ways to kind of harness that science to the right partners and get it out to clinicians and regulators and payers and other organizations that can make the right decisions. It's just there's, there's typically more great science and great clinical information than there are stakeholders to you know, explicate it and get it out to the world. Um, but one of the things that generative AI does is it kind of like flattens the, the digital content supply chain and it allows for production work, the, the ability for some of that upstream content to be produced by generative AI, at least at, at the outline or maybe draft stage, and then still allow a, a medical writing team to, to then take it and run with it from that point forward. So back in the earlier days, back in like 16, 17, we did a lot of work with natural language generation, like an earlier form of AI where you would need to train the model on thousands of pieces of original content in order to get back a report, like a financial report or a competitive intelligence report on something relevant. But typically a lot of teams we work with don't have that, that volume of content to train using uh, generative AI, we can now you know, kind of establish a, a vocabulary and ontology within an area and then set them to work and then build out an outline for things like patient lay summaries or systematic literature reviews or soon potentially 
medical journal articles and, and the like without as, as large of a corpus of content as we once required five, six years ago. And I, I think you will start seeing a lot of work in that area over the next year to year and a half where AI will kind of build that first draft, that, that outline, that, that initial stab at something and maybe get to 40 to 60% complete. And then you'll see the medical writing teams kind of progress it from that point through to completion. And it's not just a matter of like shortening the, the time to completion. But if you think of novel science and it takes maybe six, nine, 12, 18 months to get from the lab into you know, the New England Journal of Medicine or to another journal, if you can shorten that time by half and get it into the clinic in six months or nine months, that could be brilliant. That could be life-saving. So if, if we can really shorten the, the window for completion by powering the, you know, these teams, by amplifying their, their potential, I think there's a, a lot of promise there. And I think you'll see a lot of attention there in the short, in the short term. Absolutely. Anytime that you can move up those deadlines in a way that is able to benefit not only these organizations that are working on these products, but also, you know, like you said, the the drugs or treatments that are ultimately going to go to patients. That's what you're looking for. And I, I did want to make a note, too, that when you said in the earlier times and then you said 16 or 17, it just shows how much we've seen an acceleration advancement in this technology. It's not like AI wasn't around, you know, back five or six years ago, but it's different, like you said, in terms of what its capabilities are and what it's able to give back and how much is on you as the human to be able to, you know, program it to use it effectively. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely true. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the same groups that were involved, you know, a number of years ago are still kind of at it, so to speak, but are really kind of interested to see again, that kind of socialization or democratization that, that exists now, you know, just being, having people be able to kind of be exposed directly and see what's possible. I think one of the other huge areas that's going to be interesting to see is, is just in a direct to patient, patient education, the real kind of medical communications interface of when someone that's suffering from a disease goes to see their doctor and, you know, is, is kind of armed by, you know, what was, say, Dr. Google up till maybe September now is Dr. ChatGPT because you know, you'll, you'll have this huge kind of support potentially or maybe it's a harm depending on which way you look at it where, you know, if you have a medical condition, you can almost get a, a, a support or a, a, a consideration of, of what you might want to do, what might be relevant by asking ChatGPT to weigh in on your challenge before you go see your clinician. And now the clinician, whether it's a physician or PA or nurse or whatever it might be, has to contend not just with you, know, you as patient, but also with ChatGPT's response, which might be accurate, might have some inaccuracies or kind of falsehoods or you know, hallucinations, if you will, some things that are just manufactured to kind of fill in the blanks. But I think the other huge challenge for the clinician is that the the corpus of medical knowledge, just like the actual content that exists out there is growing so fast that the, there's so much new science that's available that if you're even if you're just keeping up with the medical literature as a regular practicing clinician, it's hard to keep up just in general. So it is actually possible that if someone uses ChatGPT and gets an answer to a query, it's possible that the, the response might actually be incrementally more correct than what the average physician knows, just because it's so hard to keep up with the medical literature. So I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years how, uh, how a clinician responds to queries that come from ChatGPT and whether they know whether those queries are referenced and whether they know whether they align with what they know themselves about the field itself and whether there are you know, ways of parsing that information or keeping clinicians up to date from a CME perspective and just the whole kind of 
information asymmetry that exists between the medical profession and, and patients as well. So I think that there's there's probably a lot to be kind of considered there as well. Absolutely. If anything can help keep these doctors up to speed with, you know, the dearth that we've seen in terms of medical literacy over the past few years, it's more the merrier. Uh, Matt, I've really appreciated having you on the show here, and I kind of wanted to finish up with something that you had alluded to there, just your outlook in terms of what ChatGPT looks like in the industry, both in the short term and long term. I'm just kind of curious if there's anything that maybe those in our audience should be paying attention to as it relates to kind of parsing through what we can actually see and what might be a little bit more hype or maybe unrealistic for its application. Yeah, I mean, I think as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, a number of our clients, some of the groups we work with have kind of adopted these internal protocols or policies kind of uh, encouraging or discouraging their internal staff not to use like the open source versions of ChatGPT or BARD or, um, you know, other other large language models because they might expose their internal data to the world at large. And I think we would certainly support that. And as a result, and similarly, I think you're going to start seeing this like wide, almost like Cambrian explosion of private and and kind of individual proprietary versions of generative AI across industry where people will spin up these kind of closed system, large language model, generative AI models for very specific use cases in order to ensure that the data is really kind of sacred and protected within that specific environment and that it can be built for a specific ontology or vocabulary and then also if it fails, they can fail fast. And if it works, they can scale. But I think you'll start seeing this really rapid expansion of generative AI use cases across industry in many sectors. And I think we, we you know, as, as well as other stakeholders, will hopefully publish the things that, you know, that, that we do so that if they don't work, we can all learn from them. And if they do work, we can you know, hopefully grow and, and benefit to, you know, those different stakeholders in, in the ecosystem as well. Excellent. Well, again, I appreciate you having having you on the show here and being able to run through what's a very exciting time in terms of technology and innovation in the healthcare industry. And we look forward to obviously seeing how it all turns out in the months and years to come. Likewise, Jack, thanks so much for having me on. I much appreciate it. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Last week, President Joe Biden unveiled his 2024 budget proposal, which includes policies on everything from reducing the federal deficit, enacting higher taxes on the wealthy, to, of course, lowering health care costs for Americans. The budget includes $372 million in funds for the FDA and $1.7 trillion in funding for the Department of Health and Human Services. The HHS noted those funds would be used to lower drug costs, strengthen public health preparedness, improve the health and well-being of children and seniors, expand access to health care, boost the healthcare workforce, and invest in research. In particular, Biden wants to expand on the drug pricing reform that was signed into law last year in the Inflation Reduction Act. His proposed budget would aim to strengthen Medicare's negotiating powers and double the amount of drugs originally included in the bill from 10 to 20. The COVID-19 public health emergency is set to end in May, but Biden's 2024 budget also includes $20 billion in funding for future pandemic preparedness. More than $10 billion would be put aside for the CDC to ramp up its data, workforce and lab capacity. 
Finally, the budget includes proposals to address the mental health crisis and worker shortage. It would provide $836 million to the federal government's 988 hotline, as well as $200 million to the National Institutes of Health to focus on innovative mental health research. Despite these ambitious provisions, however, it would take a great deal of bipartisan power for many of them to pass Congress, which likely leaves most drastic health policy changes off the table. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast, and we welcome back Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. So, yeah, we had a number of options this week. Actually, as we're recording this, Aaron Rodgers just said that he has the intention of playing for the New York Jets, who are famously owned by the Johnson family. So there's a little tie in there with potentially playing for the heir of the Johnson Johnson fortune. There was also a story on Vice about an ivermectin influencer who died recently, who had also been trying to convince his uh, followers to ingest kernels that contain cyanide in a way to defeat cancer. But we're not talking about any of that. We're talking about male birth control. The reason we're talking about this is I had a friend of mine actually reach out to me on TikTok the other day with a video from a certified sex and relationships educator who was breaking down a recent study that was published in Nature about a study that found a single dose of a safe, acutely acting SAC inhibitor with long residence time rendered male mice temporarily infertile. The researchers said they have developed a non-hormonal compound that temporarily inhibits the movement of sperm by blocking enzyme needed to swim. And while human trials of this treatment are still a ways off, the study offered promise for advocates of male birth control and prompted a slew of headlines in mainstream publications like NPR, the Wall Street Journal, even the BBC provided a retrospective piece on why developing male contraception has been such a fraught endeavor. This is particularly interesting in light of living in a post-Roe America, where conversations around birth control have become much more serious and impactful for men and women alike as reproductive rights have been curtailed. The ideal of male birth control is a compelling concept not only in the U.S., but in countries around the globe. A recent study funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that was presented at the Reproductive Health Innovation Summit last month in Boston found high demand for male contraceptives across eight surveyed countries. Interestingly, when it came to uptake, the fastest results based on time were in Bangladesh and Nigeria, while the U.S. finished last. Additionally, Deutsche Well Science recently asked its male Twitter followers if they would take birth control pills if they were available, with 45% answering in the affirmative and 28% answering in the negative. In an effort to clarify the nature of study findings, the aforementioned sex and relationships educator Ann Hodder Ship provided two breakdown videos on TikTok about the research with her videos totaling more than 487,000 views on the app over two days. And I just wanted to have one takeaway quote that she had here. She said, a major reason for all the excitement is the safety piece. Today, most birth control options available use hormones to stop ovulation, and it requires those hormones that are consistently and constantly present in the system for them to work. But as many people who ovulate can attest, the side effects of these hormonal options can be incredibly debilitating, both mentally, emotionally, and physically. I thought it was just a very interesting topic and a kind of a different slant for our segment in terms of talking about, obviously, that there seems to be a renewed interest in male contraceptives, even if the options for doing that in male trial, I mean, in human trials would be years away at that point before we even get into the marketing and, and distribution aspect. Absolutely. And, and the preclinical research of the male pill seems pretty promising um, from, you know, obviously the same reports that you read. 
Um, and if it pans out in humans, could could really be a major step for, for the field. Uh, while there are a myriad of female contraceptive options, there are as yet only two for men seeking contraception, of course, vasectomy and condoms. And oddly enough, according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, urology clinics around the country now annually see a spike in the number of vasectomies planned during the NCAA basketball tournament, which I thought was just an interesting data that point. That is an interesting tie-in. Given a that marketing tie-in, right? Going right into March Madness. Yes, and um, that's largely thanks to a message on T-shirts from an Oregon urology clinic that have gained a cult following, according to the journal, for how they market scheduling the procedure. The message is, make this March a slam dunk with a snip to your junk. <laughs> so it gives a whole that, other meaning. That is something you can't forget. It's very memorable indeed. Uh, and it gives a whole other meaning to March Madness. You know, Jack, it's interesting that you bring this up because there's another sort of social media angle to this that I've noticed in the last couple of years or so. There's been um, an increase of like female influencers on TikTok and YouTube basically discussing a lot of the negative side effects that they've experienced with hormo- hormonal female birth control um, and kind of convincing people to stop taking it, which, you know, has raised concern among, among experts who have pointed out, of course, that hormonal contraception is safe and effective, especially in the midst of abortion rights being curtailed in the U.S. But there is this whole discussion happening on social media where some women are saying they feel like their their contraception options aren't always the most fitting for them even now. Um, a 2020 article published in Nature noted that, quote, women's contraception preferences are simply understudied and underfunded and unmet needs are ignored and misunderstood by those who could work to address these issues. So I definitely think that, you know, people are eager for more birth control options. And obviously that includes options for men as well. That is really interesting. The idea that it's understudied too, given the fact that it's the only, it's primarily the only birth control option that's out there now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, we're only in the burgeoning stages as it relates to male birth control. So that's very interesting that that nature study that you referenced there and what, and what the, the go ahead looks like. I don't think anybody knows, but uh, it was interesting in that video, the uh, influencer I referenced uh, repeatedly kept saying the study is only in mice and right. we are years away from human trials. So right. it's kind of table setting there for people that might be eager to see this, you know, become available sooner than later. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 